Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, let's get right to it, because this great band you're hearing, the Westerlies, are winding down their introduction to Ampersand Live. Once a year, Ampersand Magazine hosts an evening of storytelling, poetry, and performance that reflects upon the unique nature of life in the Northwest. The magazine comes under the umbrella of Forterra, an organization committed to making our lives here more sustainable. It's a great cause and an inspiring event. This year's gathering took place at the Moore Theater on October 26th. Sonia Harris recorded the proceedings. Ampersand Live, or Ampersand Live, as Dina Martina would say. Thank you so much for coming out. What an incredible turnout. We have almost a 1,000 people here tonight. Give yourselves a round of applause. Amazing. My name is Sarah Rudinoff, and I'm going to be your host for this evening. And when Florangela um, and I sat down, I was looking at my notes from our first meeting and thinking about what I wanted to say tonight. And my notes said, people equals place. Now, I don't think that's what she said, because I know myself and I love to take random formatting doodles while I'm taking notes. But I kept thinking about that, people equals place. Now. Um, you know, when we first meet someone and we want to get to know them, one of the first questions that comes up is, where are you from? Now, if I'm on vacation and someone asks, where are you from? I say, Seattle. I've lived here for 23 years. It's my home. I'm from Seattle. If I'm in Seattle and someone asks, where are you from? I say, Hawaii. That's where I grew up. Woo! Whoa! Yeah! Um... If I'm home on Kauai, and let's say I'm at a grocery store, and I don't want the checkout person to think I'm a white lady howly tourist, I'll answer her with, um, oh, no, 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 no need. I don't need my receipt. Thanks, sir. I'll speak a little pigeon to be like, I'm really not a white lady. <laughs> um, and I think about this a lot when people tell me they're from Seattle. And I think, you know, when we get pissed off at the newly arrived techie who's just been here for two months, I like to think about what the Duwamish tribe might think, <laughs> since their people have been on this land for 10,000 years. Yeah. So, in Hawaii, we have a distinction. There's Hawaiian, and then there's local. Hawaiian means you have Hawaiian blood, and local means you're from there. And like Seattle or any other place, being from there, there's sort of an undefined time that makes you more or less legitimate in your claim. And, but there's a real complex local culture in Hawaii. It's made up of Hawaiian culture, and then the culture of everyone who came to Hawaii to work on the sugar plantations. Koreans, Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese, Portuguese, and missionaries, Europeans, um, we have our own language. Pidgin was just added as our third recognized language in the state. 
And uh, who's ever had a plate lunch in Hawaii? Woo! So they say our plate lunch is sort of local culture in a meal. You have the European mayonnaise macaroni salad, the Japanese white rice and teriyaki, the Hawaiian poi and kalua pig, the Chinese chow mein, the Filipino adobo, Kalbi short ribs. And I started to think like, what would a Seattle plate lunch be? I was like, some tulalip clam fritters, some Norwegian pickled herring, some salmon teriyaki, some Ezel's best coleslaw in the world, some chicken tiki masala at this point, maybe with or without pho, you could get it. I think treating everyone who comes to Seattle really looking for a place to call their home as a local is the right thing to do. Yeah, give it up if you agree. And whether you've been here for 25 years or 70 years, treating Seattle as if we were her stewards and her guests and not her owners is also the right spirit. So tonight, I am very excited to hear from many different voices who call Seattle home. And I am thrilled to host this virtual table and to be fed ideas around it. So thank you for joining me, and let's start the show. is a European starling. Yes, it is the most common bird in urban places in the entire country, including here in Seattle. It is also, if you are a birder or a conservationist, the most hated bird in the country. <laughs> so they were introduced here in 1890, came over from England, so they are a non-native, invasive, and very aggressive species. So for eco-minded people, they are reviled. When I found out that Mozart in Vienna in the late 1700s kept a starling as a pet, I was so in love with the idea. I was just captivated by that dissonance that here is this beloved, sublime composer of Western classical music who had as a cherished pet and muse for some of his work this most despised bird. So I got so carried away that I wrote a book about it, and as <laughs> research, I raised a starling in my home. <laughs> so I have to say that it is completely not legal to disturb the nest eggs or nestlings of any species in North America, almost. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Departments actually encourage us to get rid of starlings in any way we can because of their non-native invasive status. So this bird was a chick in a nest that was going to be removed from a park bathroom in Seattle. So I sort of nabbed it on its way to the city park garbage bin. Um, isn't it ugly? <laughs> It turns out that raising a baby starling is 
harrowing and difficult and time-consuming. That mouth re needed feeding every 20 minutes from dawn to dusk every single day. Um, but Carmen, her name, which means song in Latin, grew into a lovely uh, plump, here she is in her young bird feathers, a delightful part of our family. Uh, there she is with our daughter, Claire. She oversaw the writing of the book, Mozart's Starling, and I don't know if you've ever tried to write with a starling on your hand. <laughs> it's doable, but a little tricky. Um, when Carmen was four or maybe five months old, she started talking. So most people don't know that like parrots, starlings are talented mimics. So they imitate everything from the voices of other birds and animals to environmental sounds to music, which is one of the reasons that Mozart was so drawn to the starling, um, also to human speech. So the first words that Carmen started to say were the ones that we used when we interacted with her most often. So she'd say things like, hi, Hi, Carmen. Um, come here. <laughs> uh, she imitated the meow of the cat, the squeak of our wood floor, and I'm sorry to say that it's sort of a common sound in our house, the cork when it comes out of a wine bottle. <laughs> but it took me um, a long time to figure out that there was something even more astonishing and more important than just mimicry going on. Um, Carmen does mimic randomly, so she's just calling out stuff all the time in the house. But most often, she mimics in context and in anticipation of what's going to happen next in our household. So when I walk downstairs in the morning and turn on the light, she jumps to the edge of her aviary and looks at me and says, hi, Carmen, <laughs> which is usually the first word that I would say to her. Then when our cat Delilah comes downstairs, she looks at the cat and she says, meow. <laughs> and then I go over to the counter to make the coffee. And when she hears the tinkle of beans in the jar, she goes, Rrr, the sound of the coffee grinder that she knows is about to happen. And I have one little snippet for you here. So what you're going to hear is me opening and closing the microwave door, which Carmen will take as her cue to make the beeping of the microwave buttons. So let's listen. It's a door. It's pitch. Perfect. You can't tell them apart from the next room. <laughs> the thing about it, though, is that it's not just Carmen. As wondrous and brilliant as we think the little bird that lives in our house is, it's not just her that has this playful and intelligent response, uh, this kind of aural and vocal participation with the world around her. It is it is also the thousands of starlings that live among us every day. And the starlings remind us to take that lesson a step further and remember that it's not just starlings that have this brilliant participation and responsiveness to the world around them, but it's every creature that lives among us, from the earthworms unseen beneath our feet to the raccoons and the coyotes that wander our streets at night in our neighborhoods while we're asleep. 
All of them have their own sense of consciousness, of awareness, of responsiveness to the world that we all share. And this hated little bird that I live with reminds me that every time I step out into the world, and all of us do, we enter a great conversation, whether we want to or not. Emerson wrote that we lie in the lap of an immense intelligence. And I will just paraphrase the second part of that by saying, it means that it matters what we do. Carmen reminds me every day that it matters and reverberates when we walk into the world with kindness, when we walk with awareness of each other and the more than human world, when we walk with, I'll say, joy, with justice, with grace, we join all of the other creatures, common, reviled, loved, uncommon, as we walk together in a messy, sometimes contradictory, but intertwined beauty. Thank you. on Bainbridge Island, but I'm from Georgia, where I was born and raised, where we never learned about the Japanese internment in my school. It was not a subject that was ever taught. For the last several years, I have been touring the country with a company called Living Voices, sharing this important time in history with kids who might not otherwise learn about it. In the last year or so, we've seen our country come dangerously close to repeating some of our past mistakes. With that in mind, I present to you this beautiful poem by Alan Chong Lao, who writes about a small plot of land in Seattle. So much has been erased, but one small plot of land honors a young woman named Chiyo Murakami and the neighborhood that was the once thriving Nihonmachi. The Garden at Higo by Alan Chong Lao. One, an imaginary page from Chiyo Murakami's diary, 1936. South Washington, Maine, King, Yell Weller, Lane, Dearborn, Jackson. These were the streets that formed Seattle's Nihonmachi. Our store on South Weller was started by my parents, Sanzo and Matsuyo. This was my home until I was 22. Bedridden from tuberculosis, I gaze out my bedroom window to the grass below. See our dog Skippy tail wagging under the Japanese pear tree. Nihonmachi kids play fort with our cardboard boxes, taking aim with pea shooters. When we burn everything up in the yard, orange flames lick a cloudy sky. Unable to sleep, I can hear the hushed prayers of Oka-san, Oto-san, Aya, Kei, and Masa slip up the stairs. 
I wish I could help decorate the store for Christmas, but I'll be gone before this whole neighborhood disappears. Two, Kobo comes to Higo. After the war, there were the missing and the dead. Not everyone came back, dispersed to wherever they could find work. But those who did found the Higo store still standing, saved by a pawn shop neighbor. Home again for those starting interrupted lives over in the reassembled architecture that follows hysteria. Like the emblem of a frog that once graced advertisements on a fading theater wall, the Murakami store returns from a patch of weeds. Surrounded from city streets, a garden emerges for the living. And yes, the branches of this 100-year-old tree where children once played still bear fruit. I remember the first time I ran away from home. I was six or seven, and my biological mother was chasing me around our very small apartment because she was trying to whoop my ass. And I was nimble then, uh, so I maneuvered the furniture like a professional athlete, made my way out the door, down the street, and into the wilderness. And there I sat, behind this tree, and I, I pulled the silence over my body like a comforter and I felt the pressure of this tree trunk on my back and I knew that I was at home. I stayed there until it was dark. And I was a storyteller even then, except it was the 90s, so most of my stories were adaptations from Oregon Trail or <laughs> I like pretended that I was Sacagawea and Lewis and Clark. Well, when I was in my 20s, my alma mater, which was this poor, it was a boarding school for poor kids, they approached me and they said, you know, Yehan, we'd like to start an experiential ed school and we'd love for you to come on board. And the plan was for us to take young people into the wilderness for weeks at a time so that way they could be challenged by the wilderness and themselves and then grow. But we were painfully understaffed. I worked long hours, and eventually the schedule was just too much for the wilderness therapy guides that we had hired, and so they quit. And <laughs> I was like, hey, can I take their place? Because that's what I guess everyone would do. And my supervisor said, absolutely, sure. And I didn't have a, form like a formal wilderness education, but I remember those trips I would take as a young person, and that's what I wanted to do with my sixth and seventh graders. 
And so we would go on these like, midday lunchtime jaunts. Well, on one of our midday adventures, uh, three of my girls approached me and said, uh, Yehan, we have to pee. And I was like, oh, okay, great. So just like go that way and then we'll wait here and you pee and come back and join us. Well, when they came back, they were changed. <laughs> and I, I looked at this pattern on their pants and, and there was a pattern that looked like Florida had melted from their waistband all the way into their shoes. And it didn't dawn on me that when I said, you can go pee over there, I should have also said, don't forget to pull down your pants. <laughs> so I stayed at that program for three years and I built it up um, until it ended up closing its doors. And I found myself in this conversation with uh, his, a man, his name is Andrew Jay, and he lives in Seattle. And we had this great conversation about justice and identity and the wilderness and this need to get a more multicultural presence in outdoor education. And from that conversation, I got on a plane and decided that I was going to live in Seattle. And when I arrived, I knew again that I was home. That summer, I spent 72 out of 90 days in the backcountry with a map, a sat phone, a group of young men, and a co-instructor, and, and that was it. Now, even though I had spent the equivalent of years of my life in the wilderness, I still felt inadequate because no one taught me to do anything. I just learned by doing and failing and doing and failing again and again and again. Well, one day, Andrew sent me this email, and on it was an application to get a free ride to, this, to a 30-day course. I applied, and I was accepted to this 30-day uh, backpacking and whitewater canoe course in the Yukon wilderness. Well, on our first nights in the backcountry, once I got into the field, uh, my tent mate woke me up, and they were complaining of pain all over their body, so much pain that she couldn't walk, but she had to poop. So my instincts kicked in. <laughs> and, and I woke up the other two folks in my tent, um, because when, when you're in grizzly bear country, you have to poop in groups of four or more. <laughs> Hashtag poop train. <laughs> So I put this uh, woman on my back and I carried her from camp with only the moonlight and our headlamps to guide us and these two sleepy guys in tow. And now I found this great pooping spot. So I rested her on a nurse log and I, I digged her a cat hole. And then once I was done, she couldn't poop by herself. So I squatted and she squatted and I balanced her. And, uh, we held hands until she dropped a deuce into the cat hole that I had <laughs> dug for her. And when she was finished, I handed her the pine cones that I had scavenged for her to, to take care of her other need. And then I stirred her poop with the pine cones in the hole. And I had only known her for 24 hours. <laughs> My instinct in that situation was kindness. Now, a few weeks later, we were on the hiking portion of our course, and it was a late morning, and a bunch of us had decided to take a, a later start to our hike. And we moseyed our way up this hill, and we made our way to a ridgeline, and we were in the middle of this, like, 
impromptu uh, lesson about reading weather when I heard someone say behind me, hey, is that a grizzly bear? And so I looked to my left, and there was this, it looked like Pizza the Hut from Spaceballs, <laughs> except with more hair about 100 yards away. And then I heard a scream to my right, and, it said, and the person was saying, get off of the ridge line. And I turned back to my right to ask the person what they were talking about when I looked up and I saw that the weather that seemed like it was miles away had changed to being right in front of us. Lightning struck. And then I saw this blur of yellow. And it was our lead instructor. Now, our lead instructor, when you see him, he is a man that looks like he would chop some wood or he would like whittle you an arts and craft like right in front of you in record time. He doesn't look like a runner. So when he took off, I took off. Because I guarantee you, I'm not gonna be the first black person in the history of black people to ask questions first and then run. So he threw his trekking poles. I threw my trekking poles. He threw them again, and I went mid-breath, are we leaving these here? No answer. I watched a peer of mine lose his footing and tumble the rest of the way down the hill. At this point, the grizzly bear had finally got wind of us and just saw this mob of people just running toward it, and I went, are we literally running toward a grizzly bear to avoid getting struck by lightning? <laughs> Silence. So we made our way down the hill. And my peers, some of them were crying, some of them were covering their heads, and I just lifted my head and let the hail that had started to come down on us just hit my face. And I started to sing. And I realized that some people have their instincts really tuned into environment. And even though I felt like an imposter, all I had to do when I was in the wilderness is do what I knew. Thank you. Ampersand Live. I hate following acts like that. <laughs> so, um, so here, I'm your interlude. You know, like in a Greek play, the guy who comes out and tells you what it's really all about. So, for Terry is in this continuous conversation with all of you, with this place, how to make the Pacific Northwest the best it can be. Sustainable, resilient, a conversation about, if I got this right, our wildlands. A conversation about our cities. And something more fundamental. Fundamental about who we are and what we need. Now this came to me in startling, startling clarity about a year ago 
at Ampersand Live 2016. It was two days after the presidential election. Can you imagine that? Right? So there was Tomo. Whoop, look, I'm not keeping up here. There was Tomo. He had just finished his jazz piece, and he segued into the civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome. And right like that, the audience was with him. Right there. I was gobsmacked. I was stunned. And I got it. I knew it. It is not good enough just to work for a sustainable landscape unless you are working for sustain, a sustaining community, a place that cared. Now, if we are not working for both a sustainable landscape and a sustaining community, we risk getting neither. And that's not just a clever marketing slogan, though I kind of like it. It is really built into our DNA, absolutely embedded in our DNA. So let me convince you of that. Let me convince you of that by taking us away from this time and this place. In fact, taking us back and reacquainting, re reacquainting us to our very first ancestor. Now, we don't know her name. I doubt she had a name, and if she had a name, I know she couldn't speak it. But we call her Lucy today. So we don't know much about, we don't have much about Lucy anymore. But this, a few bones. But science allows us to reanimate, science and a little bit of art, allows us to reanimate those bones to this. Now look at that face. I mean, look at that face of, besides those cheekbones that any movie actor would kill for. Look at those eyes. Look at the dawning, the beginning of our humanity in those eyes. And then look at the wariness behind that, those eyes. The wariness is well-earned. There's a good reason for that wariness. This is a, these are some fossilized footprints from 150,000 generations ago when Lucy was with us. 150,000 generations ago, one of Lucy's sisters ran across that stream bed to probably the safety of a clump of trees. And right alongside her are those little footprints. And you can just see that Lucy's sister's hugging on to her daughter as they scamper to safety. That is part of our shared deep history of a very unyielding and unforgiving environment. So now let me half that distance. Let, let me take us from 150,000 generations ago to only 75,000 generations ago. And we were Homo erectus. Erectus because our, our posture is much like it is today. Now, there are a lot of bones of Homo erectus. They're scattered all, he, the Homo erectus got everywhere. They're scattered all around the world. And so we can build a pretty good model of who Homo erectus was, what we looked like. We look like that. Now look at that face. And you can see more humanity in that face after 75,000 generations. But you also see a confidence. Look at the jut of that jaw. huh? So there's a good reason for that. And the good reason is this. This crude tool, it's called a hand axe, you know, is, hand, is handled in it just like this, just like you can imagine. And it was what began to cleave us away from our natural world. It was the beginning of the way we could start to control a very uncertain and scary place. 
So think about that. For 75,000 years, we have been enacting the very essence of our human condition, this need to control and dominate our planet, and also the humanity that helps us teach us to sort of live with what's important, live together and side by side for 75,000 years. So now let me take you up to much more or less today. Homo homo sapiens, to give us our full scientific due. Homo homo sapiens. And so I'm not going to show you pictures of us. I'm not going to show you our bones. But I'm going to show you this. Now, scientists call those flutings. You and I call them finger paintings. Look at the exuberance, that, that sort of human exuberance and excitement, the humanity in those finger paintings, right? Now, what science does tell us, and I think this is thrilling, that those finger paintings were made by a child between seven and eight years of age, and in fact, made by a girl child, seven, eight years old. That finger painting is from a, a wall, a cave wall in southwest France, about six and a half feet up. Let's see. Yeah, um, about six and a half feet up. So think about that. That little seven or eight-year-old girl was probably on her mama or daddy's shoulders. So there they were, just like today, 8,000 generations ago. Think about that. 8,000 generations ago, we had the very spirit of our humanity today. Standing there as if it's a day in the park, mama and daddy together playing, the girls probably giggling as they do this, this uh, finger painting. And that's not a one-off shot of our deep humanity. I can show you pictures like that from all around the world. Let me show you one more from 2,000 generations ago. I think this is stunning. Look at all those hands. Now, those stencils made 2,000 generations ago were people like us who put ochre in their mouths and then sprayed it over their hands. And if you look closer at those hands, they're big ones and little ones. So clearly, there are old people and young people, middle-aged people, all there in this incredibly cacophony of joy, cacophony of humanity, all together. And that's us, too. That's our humanity. So there we are. And that's what we need to think about today, is that if we want to have a sustainable region, it's about, really, us. It's about a, a sustaining community a place that cares. So if we want our wild landscapes and we want our great cities, it's really about us. And that's what the rest of tonight, this continuous conversation is about. Thank you very much. I want to interview the, our, our house band a little bit here. These, these four gentlemen are, make up the Westerlies, and you guys are based in New York, yes? But you're from Seattle, is that correct? Tell me a little bit about how you met and, and how the band came together, whoever wants to start. Hi. Uh, yeah, we are the Westerlies. We are in our hometown. Three of us went to Garfield High School, one went to Roosevelt. Who, who's the one that went to Roosevelt? Should we guess? Oh. <laughs> I was going to do some crowd participation, but uh, um, yeah, and we all, we all moved out to New York for our uh, college time and formed this ensemble out there. Awesome. Now, where did Westerly's, the band name, come from? We got the name from the winds that go from the west to the east. Um, 
play wind instruments, and we sort of followed that path. Nice. Uh, so the name came together, and then it sort of matched the spirit of trying to take what we have here, spread it east and wherever else we go. Wonderful. Great. Well, um, what do you, you're going to play a composition for us, a whole song through, not just an interlude here. And you want to tell me a little bit, uh, introduce what you're going to be doing? Sure. This is an old folk song from England called Sarrow that uh, we adapted for this weird instrumentation we have here. All right. Give it up for the Westerlies.
When I was young, I was in a summer mountain biking camp in my hometown of Ketchum, Idaho. One day, I remember charging down a bumpy forest road. I was ahead of the group, going pretty fast, and I drifted into a road rut. Which, if you know anything about mountain biking, it's not the best situation to be in. Suddenly, when I looked up, I saw a white mass blocking the road. Being the novice mountain biker that I was, I panicked. I turned my wheels, caught the rut, and flew over my handlebars. When I opened my eyes, all I saw was white. I heard obnoxiously loud sounds, and I realized I had almost run into a flock of about a thousand sheep. Since that crash, I've wondered, what the heck were all these sheep doing in the mountains? Why were they there? And who was this man with a pole poking and yelling at them? To this day, I still have a scar on my hip and a lasting curiosity for mountain sheep herding. And for the past year and a half, I've been following the last large-scale sheep herding operation allowed on forest land in Washington State. Throughout the summer, flocks of sheep, tra flocks of sheep traverse mountainsides. They're guided by migrant sheep herders. Most of the herders have been doing this work for over a decade. All come with one mission, to provide for themselves or their families. But it's not without sacrifice. The herders learn husbandry knowledge in Peru. They come to the States under the H-2A visa program. They work for two and a half years straight before returning home to Peru for a short three-month vacation. After their vacation, they come back to the States and do it all over again. They work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, earning about 1,200 US dollars a month. They miss birthdays, holidays, and everyday family moments. They spend most of their year alone with their herding dogs. Trailers provide shelter, and in their downtime, they listen to Peruvian music on the radios or watch DVDs of family parties back home. The sheep herding cycle starts in late spring. Sheep are loaded onto trucks and each herder is assigned a flock. They first move through low farmlands and then make their way up to the mountains between Ellensburg and Wenatchee. The herders walk hundreds of miles, moving their sheep vast distances in order to make sure that they feed and grow. They are constantly aware of their sheep, in tune with the forest and their flock. They are never lost because they follow pathways they have walked for years. And if sheep stray, they aren't hard to find. Their faint sounds, nibbled grass, or the herder's recollection of where they foraged the year before clue them in. If the herder hears his dogs barking, he thinks, is it a bear or a cougar? 
If they see vultures circling above, they think maybe a sheep has died. The work is demanding, vigorous, and never-ending. They sacrifice their social and family life to be able to earn a living wage. I started this project because I wanted to learn more about sheep herding. I continue because I want to spread awareness to how difficult this work is. I wonder, without these migrant workers, would this age-old tradition still exist? For now, I'll keep taking pictures and searching for answers. Thanks for listening. Are we having fun tonight? How fantastic to look out and see a thousand people here to talk about nature and think about people and place. What a thrill. So I write almost every day, um, but this morning I got up early and I wrote this, especially for you. I want to talk about a miracle that is in our midst, trees. You know, they're not just standing there. They sustain a vast suite of lives above ground and below. They're connected, they're communicating with one another through networks of roots, mycorrhizal fungi laced all through the ground. And they feed hundreds of species with their acorns, their seeds, and their leaves. And they sustain us, creating the oxygen that we breathe. That is our beautiful connection, so intimate, our shared breath. Each time we exhale, we feed the trees around us. And with each new breath, we take in the gift of trees pure, sweet oxygen. What is it that is so captivating about trees? In our ephemeral world, trees contain time. Trees were here long before us on this earth, and their lives are so much longer than ours. We all know a tree that we love. We take comfort in the fact that it will be here long after our soft, squishy, evervescently mortal selves are gone. But here's the thing. We are changing trees. Deep in their living, breathing, endlessly creating essence, with the exodus of our humanity, all of our works, that carbon dioxide we breathe from our bodies, trees can manage that, they even need it. But from our factories, cement plants, cars, and coal, that is more carbon dioxide gushed into the atmosphere, millions of years worth, dumped 
just since the Industrial Revolution that trees can't absorb. So it stays in our atmosphere, cooking our planet. I spent a year at the Harvard Forest living with a single 100-year-old red oak tree to learn through the life of one living being how we are already changing our world. There it is. With the help of dendrologists, biologists, ecologists, mycologists, every ologist you could think of, I learned how, over the past 100 years, the frenzied thrust of our carbon love affair is changing trees. My red oak, my witness tree. So, here's what we learned. It's growing faster than ever, feasting on all that CO2 we've spewed into the atmosphere. You can see it in my trees, galloping rings, growing bigger, fatter year upon year. It is bench-pressing carbon like a teenager and doing all that while barely taking a drink. It's closing down its stomata rather than opening wide. You know, those little breathing pores on the, other, on the underside of the leaves. For why lose more precious moisture than you have to when you can get all the food you need, that CO2, from just a sip of air? So laden now with 400 parts per million of carbon and counting. And I learned that our hands, humanity's hands, are on the very seasonal clock, that beautiful gyre that winds the year. Spring is earlier, fall is later. Winter is squeezed on both ends. The growing season is now so long, the leaves fall off my tree as if it's exhausted, even as the weather remains warm, even into November. For there are two seasons now, the ancient timing of my tree's ancestors baked deep into its DNA, and the seasons made by us. So, we hurdle forward, into a rate of environmental change faster than anything in the last 100 million years, an aberration virtually without precedent in our planet's 4.5 billion year history. And yet, nature is brilliant, resilient. Life itself is the most powerful force on Earth, and it will continue with or without us the choice is ours. To continue on this beautiful planet to which we are so suited, to savor the beauty of nature, the glimmer of this frost on these delicate twigs, it was gone by mid-morning, but there to see and enjoy that and a hundred other miracles every day, each hour, as I lived with my tree. All this is told in the book that I wrote, just published, about my year with my tree at the Harvard Forest, Witness Tree, Seasons of Change in a Century-Old Oak. So, here's my question for you, each and every one of you. Where is your witness tree? Is it at your grandmother's house? Is it outside your childhood bedroom window? Is it the tree you watch each day, each year, outside your kitchen window? It is your friend. It is your anchor. Honor it. Love your connection to your chosen place. Let it flourish. Savor it. 
defend it, pass it on. Know that if humanity is to live long on this dear, sweet earth, it will be from that love, that wellspring of caretaking by people, each and every one, every day, for the place that we call home. Stand up for this place. Thank you. It feels like I spent half my life crawling through the muck, and the other half getting chased around by something that wants to eat me. (laughs) Which is odd, since I never set out to be a nature photographer. I grew up between a trailer park and a chicken farm. Where I'm from, nature is mostly poison ivy and junk cars and busted beer bottles. When I started out, I was gonna be the next famous war photographer. But my first job was working for a small town newspaper back east. I showed up that first day with dreams of journalistic glory. The day-to-day was a little less dramatic. Instead of my editor sending me out to combat, they sent me to the county fair, to an endless string of high school football games. I mean, once in a while, we'd have a small bit of drama and mayhem, like uh, like a car wreck or a house fire. But when all else failed, I'd just drive around, hope that lightning might strike artistically or literally. Um, yeah, it, it felt like I was telling the story of my hometown one day at a time. And after a few years of this, I found myself, found myself at another paper up in Alaska. It was the same daily journalistic grind, but there I might wake up and find a moose on the front porch, <laughs> bald eagles on the drive to work. And I looked up from the camera and saw my new hometown was surrounded by miles of scenic wonder. I abandoned the trenches of daily journalism and tried to tell some new stories about wild lands and wild animals. But from the elephants of the Kalahari to the salmon of our Pacific Northwest rivers and even down to Antarctica, there remains only a hint of what once, of what once was there. And I spent a good part of the last two decades chasing shadows, it seems, the ghosts of the vast untouched wilderness that once defined our world. I've wandered further and further afield. For some reason, I've always liked traveling alone and doing things the hard way. Is it because I'm stubborn, cheap, and disagreeable? Rumor has it. Um, (laughs) But but I found the lessons you remember are the ones you learn the hard way. They say all the easy pictures have been taken, but I'm here to tell you there are some stupid ones left. You know, nearly all of my trips have been do-it-yourself expeditions in that land cruiser across Africa or by boat to southeast Alaska to photograph humpback whales at close range. Oops, there we go. Um, On foot near Kodiak Island 
to walk among the grizzly bears out by the Katmai coast, and most recently to Hudson Bay in Arctic Canada to photograph polar bears. I mean, these are the iconic species of the North. Uh, they're the poster children for climate change and all that we stand to lose. I wanted to see these bears, but not in some overcrowded, overpriced tundra buggy. Rather, as the first people did, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, eye to eye, on the polar bear's terms. I figure pretty quick, this was gonna be a BYOB job. Bring your own boat. <laughs> the maps told me it was 2,000 miles from Ballard Bridge to the end of the road in northern Manitoba. All I had to do then was get my tired old boat named Seasick halfway across the continent, put her into some unknown river, float 75 miles down to Hudson Bay, hang a left, and 800 miles later, I'd be at the Arctic Circle. <laughs> the boat was perfect for a weekend fishing trip in the San Juans, but as for months of travel and uncharted icy water, we'd see. So I gathered all my smelly long underwear, dinged up cameras, crammed it all into waterproof cases, and then I went shopping. Came home with three GPSs, two depth finders, an entire set of nautical charts to the Northwest Passage. Better safe than sorry. When I got to the end of the road and back seasick into the Nelson River, there was just no turning back. And for weeks, I was plagued by bad navigation and worse weather. I was either running aground on the rocks or being battered by storms. I went out looking for ice and for polar bears, and for the first six weeks, I saw plenty of neither. Then, after nearly a thousand miles, the ice found me, almost crushed the boat. I had to run seasick aground on a rocky beach on purpose this time. Um, but, but when the icebergs finally moved off, the world was transformed. I was surrounded by icebergs and hundreds of walrus. I mean, it was like a vision from two centuries ago. And when the iceberg, um, you know, there were dozens of polar bears on the hunt, and it was magical. And it also scared the hell out of me. I mean, I was trying to create these intimate pictures of bears, and that meant getting as close as I could to photograph them stalking and hunting on the ice, or swimming through the water during the summer melt. I mean, most, most times, the bears wanted nothing to do with me. And yet other times, they came way too close for comfort, sneaking out to for a look in the boat's window, like they come over to borrow sugar, <laughs> taking a bite out of my camera, or tearing a big hole in the side of my inflatable Zodiac. But, I mean, it, it felt like I had stepped back in time. I was usually scared, cold, and absolutely miserable. But traveling in a land where polar bears ruled supreme, I was just an onlooker. I mean, I was there as a witness. And it felt like maybe I'd become that war photographer of sorts after all. I mean, what, what is the most important conflict of our time? Isn't it man's ongoing war against our own planet and the animal that's, animals that once thrived here? I can't keep track of my car keys most days, so I don't imagine I'm gonna change the world anytime soon. Not on my own. But, but for, for four summers, I went back again and again to the Arctic and tiptoed up to the, the edge of disaster. I wanted to, to try to tell the story of one of the world's last great wild places. And I wanted to create a lasting record and show that these lands and those animals are worth remembering and protecting. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
Hi, I want to lead you on a walk today to, uh, through downtown to explore architecture. Architecture is a word that combines ideas of trees with ideas of the built environment. And I want to use this concept as a way to explore history. Uh, with all the new construction downtown, um, a lot of the physical history has been erased. So I hope having a deeper understanding of the past will create a deeper meaning in our lives in the present. So let's get started. We have three stops on our tour. Uh, the first one will be uh, the Amazon spheres. I'm sure you've all probably seen these already. Um, these spheres kind of riff off Buckminster Fuller's geodesic domes, which um, utopically were all about making shelter more available to the greatest number of people. Uh, the Amazon spheres take a more of an invisible hand approach to things. They're tree-filled, corporate, and naturally have their own Instagram account. Um, when they're finished, they'll contain over 40,000 unique botanic specimens sourced from all over the world, many with such unique needs that they'll have to be hand-watered, so true hothouse flowers. Um, and the Amazonians will be uh, safely ensconced inside their own private jungle. Um, at once, safe from the outside world, um, but there we go. Um, at once safe from the outside world, uh, but at the same time observed as if in a petri dish during the uh, proposed official tours. Now, if we take a look at uh, this area of Seattle, South Lake Union, and where the Amazon campus currently is, um, well, before colonization, of course, it was all forested. Um, but after that, in the 1800s, it was uh, the site of a clear-cut and mill operation. And then after that, it was uh, farmland. And then uh, a while after that, it was leveled during the regrade. So ironically, the spheres bring us back full circle to hills and vegetation. The second stop on our tour is Freeway Park. Um, this was built in 1976. It was the nation's first freeway cap, and it was considered a major architectural and engineering feat. Uh, the architect who designed it was uh, married to a modern dancer, and uh, the, uh, there's a number of plinths inside the, the park that create these perfect stages for um, interaction, choreography between people and the natural world. Uh, clearly, um, the architect's wife, who was a modern dancer, influenced this. Um, the uh, park reminds me of another modern wonder, which are the Babylonian hanging gardens. Um, these may or may not have been in Babylon or even existed at all. There's no architectural record for them. Um, but there are two theories about what they're about. Uh, one is about engineering and the other is about love. The engineering version uh, states that in 650 BCE, an Assyrian king built them as a wonder for all people. Um, with the turn of a screw, uh, floods of water would come down from the mountain. Uh, there was uh, this feat of hydraulic engineering involved. The other story states that a Babylonian king built them for his wife, who was homesick for her verdant and mountainous land. Um, and sort of depressed and flat and arid Babylon. And so he built the garden to cheer her up, to replace this bit of a lost landscape. And um, 
Freeway Park actually combines both of those stories. It's a feat of engineering and also replaces a bit of a lost landscape. The one that was uh, uh, leveled during the building of Interstate 5. Um, Interstate 5 was built in 1967 and tore a gash through Seattle. Um, interestingly, the gash mirrors the contours of the city's then practice of redlining. Redlining is when you deny people housing and um, services based on race or uh, religion. And um, the, the banks at the time made decisions that certain neighborhoods weren't worth um, improving because they were dying. So I-5 effectively left uh, hazardous D-5 and definitely declining C-11 cut off from the business districts. So the areas with the greatest de population density were cut off from the areas with the greatest job density. So this could be seen as uh, leading to the gentrification we have today in those same areas, uh, Capitol Hill and uh, the central area. So while most people just thought that this was the price to pay for um, progress, not everybody was super happy about it. This is Anne Gould Hoberg. She was a uh, art supporter, civic activist, and what the current president might consider a nasty woman. <laughs> Here she is leading a group of 100 protesters, wielding rhododendron branches down 7th Avenue in a march against the building of Interstate 5 through downtown. At the very least, Anne felt that uh, Interstate should be lidded and the lid uh, turned into a park. And it was Anne who focused public opinion on this need and many give her credit for the park's existence. Anne is quoted as saying, uh, one seed, a tree, than many seeds from which the most amazing growth happens. And uh, this brings us to the last stop on our tour, uh, Plymouth Pillar Park. You've probably passed this a million times. It's right on the corner of uh, Pike and Boren. Um, it's a little pocket park. I think the most obvious question to ask when you're at this park is, why are these columns here? <laughs> and what is this doing overlooking I-5? Well. As it turns out, the columns were originally part of the entrance to Plymouth Church. It was a historic congregation that began in 1980, or excuse me, 1869. Uh, the church was a hotspot for women suffragists and has a history of social justice advocacy. Even today, it has programs like Plymouth Housing Group, which supplies uh, housing for the homeless. So back in 1965, uh, Plymouth Church was torn down to make way for I-5. And so Anne Hoberg, who's becoming somewhat of a little uh, hero in this architecture adventure, stepped in and had the columns, each of them uh, made up of seven four-ton segments, reconstituted and uh, dedicated to the city as a park uh, in, on October 24th, 1967, so almost 50 years ago to the day. Um, so before we go any further, um, I just want to talk about the connection between trees and columns. It's generally held that uh, tree groves were the site of ancient, ancient Greek worship. Um, and over time, wood columns in Greek cities replaced those tree groves in the forests and then eventually stone columns replace the wood ones altogether. So when we see columns, what we're actually seeing is a artificial ancient sacred grove of trees. So now let's get back to the park. 
Okay, so here we are at the park. We're surrounded by columns sourced from a service-oriented church that was torn down to make way for a freeway. Um, a, free a freeway that literally, economically, and some might say spiritually divided the city. So in effect, when we stand in the park, we're uh, inside the church. We become the congregation looking through this sacred column of trees at a city that has been clear-cut and leveled and divided by race and class. We're looking at a city that needs our service. The park has become the church, the park goers, the parishioners, the columns, an ancient sacred grove of trees. Thank you. grizzly bear. I spent over 20 years of my life studying the great bear. It's powerful. It's intelligent. Like humans, the grizzly bear mother can be very tender when teaching her cubs and very aggressive when defending them. We think of them as symbols of wilderness. As an ecologist, we use them as indicators of healthy ecosystems. At one time, grizzly bears roamed throughout the North Cascades Mountains, but now we have but a few. As scientists, we begin to refer to them as the ghost bear of the North Cascades. I and my team have spent nearly a decade trying to, to discover how many grizzly bears, if any, we still have left in the North Cascades. We investigated the historical trapping records, these records kept by the Hudson Bay Fur Company, and we found that historically we once had a very robust population of grizzly bears. However, in the mid-1800s, about a 20-year period, about 4,000 grizzly bear hides were processed through the forts that occur in and around the North Cascades. This had a significant impact on the grizzly bear here. In fact, what we see today is just nothing but a remnant from the past days when their populations were much larger. The North Cascades are rugged, they're remote, they're awe-inspiring, their wildness is even intimidating. Nearly 10,000 square miles form the North Cascades, made up of national parks and wilderness areas, public lands. It forms one of the largest remaining wild areas in the lower 48. This ruggedness is, and wildness is probably what prevented the grizzly bear from being completely extirpated from the North Cascades because they had safe places to hide. It's also what makes it really challenging to try to find a grizzly bear in the North Cascades. So we use this thing we call a hair snare, which is a way of tricking a bear to leave us a piece of hair. It's not always easy to go grab a piece of hair from a bear. <laughs> it's, a simple, it's a simple device. It's just a, a barbed wire strand hung about knee high from trees uh, in, the middle of, in, in a circle. In the middle of that circle, we build a pile of sticks. And then we pour this thing we call goo over the top of that pile. Our goo takes a little bit to make. Uh, we start cooking our goo in the fall. 
Uh, we collect roadkill deer, we collect spawned out salmon, we put them in a big 50 gallon drum, and as they liquefy, we stir them and encourage it to become liquid. Um, by the springtime, our goo is ready. <laughs> it has a lovely dark red color. Our bears love it. I was once asked, doesn't that make bears sick? And I replied, no, we only use all natural organic ingredients. <laughs> However, that stuff smells really, really bad. I once watched one of my fellow biologists drip a small part, just a few drops on his pant leg. He promptly took out his knife, cut off his pant leg, and left the pant leg on the pile. <laughs> Our hair corrals are designed specifically to capture hair from bear. We send that hair to a lab, and that lab tells us whether a grizzly bear or a black bear visited that hair snare. We also use remote cameras, because remote cameras are effective for other kinds of species that we're also interested in. So with our backpacks full of personal gear, barbed wire to make our corrals, and now jean bottles full of bear goo, we venture out into the North Cascades wilderness. Now, field work in the North Cascades is hard and sometimes it's quite dangerous, because we're trying to access very remote places. We, we cross rivers. We cross snow fields. And during the course of our study, we've covered literally hundreds and hundreds of miles of trails and off-trail routes. And we've hiked thousands and thousands of feet to access uh, the, the, the best bear country in the, high, in the high parts of the North Cascades. Over the past about 10 years, we've placed over 700 hair snares throughout the North Cascades, venturing into places that few people go. On our cameras, we've discovered new home ranges for the wolverine. We've documented new wolf packs. We've gotten photos of a beautiful cat called the Canadian lynx, which are quite rare and elusive. We got this funny looking bear, and when I looked at this, I thought, are there ant eaters in the North Cascades? <laughs> this is actually a young, uh, blonde-colored black bear. We've captured um, DNA, hair and DNA, from nearly 750 black bears in our, in our research. Um, we have yet to capture a single hair or get a single photo of a grizzly bear. So during last fall, um, on our final day of field work, as we were wrapping things up for the field season. I sat in my tent overlooking this beautiful vista high on a ridge in the North Cascades Park, and I, I contemplated what it meant to be looking so long and looking so hard and not finding the grizzly bear. And I sat down in, my, in, my, in the tent by myself there and I wrote the following in my journal as sort of a reflection of what I think this means. From my tent door, I can see a storm rolling in. Winter is fast approaching, and soon these mountains will be coated with a thick blanket of snow. The bears will be tucked away in their dens, and I will be glued to my office chair and computer screen. Stretched out before me is a vast wildness, something rare in our human-dominated world. Yet this place so vast and wild is missing something. Yes, wolves and wolverines are returning. 
reclaiming their past territories, but the grizzly bear struggles. Their numbers are too low to make it without human intervention. How ironic the North Cascades, one of the largest remaining wild areas in the, in the United States, yet the very symbol of wilderness, the grizzly bear, barely hangs on. We as a society, as a people, have a decision to make. Do we reach out and help save a species, or do we stand by and watch as they disappear and become ghosts of our past? I say we lend them a hand. Thank you. which is, hello friends, in Lashutsi, the language of these lands, the traditional territories of the Coast Salish people. We're not far away from where the Duwamish used to set up their duck nets at this time of year, just over the hill towards the water. And this is the time of year that I'm reminded that we're on sacred territories. In 2016, in October, it was also the time of year when the Syrian crisis had reached a pinnacle. I heard time and time again that people did not want those refugees on these lands now called the United States of America. I began to realize and think about only 2% of the population are indigenous peoples to these lands. Unless you're one of them, or one of the peoples whose ancestors were forced here through slavery, you too are an immigrant to these lands. The film that I want to share with you tonight is, it's an ode to the sacredness that as guests here in traditional territories of the Coast Salish people, we must remember to take care of and respect and honor the land and the peoples of these lands. Thank you. Our ancestors would say, go and sit with those old ones, Askwani, tree people, in their quiet moments, and you will hear 
powerful things. You will learn what it means to be who we are. This core, the voices of our ancestors, sometimes they whisper, and we really gotta listen. But it's so hard to not be distracted in this city we live in, with honking horns and busy people rushing here and there, in lanes of traffic, smog and sounds, overpowering the sound of my own heart, the sound of my own spirit, and I know this is part of the plan. They don't want us to hear it. It's impossible for me to welcome in the colonial mentality that saturates my skin. So I defy, I defy access to them, protection I wear, tattoos upon my skin, ash made of devil's club and lava rock, protect me in this road that I walk, help me ancestors, be the person I was meant to be, don't let me be less than who I am meant to be, let me step into the power of my ancestry, even through this English language and its limitations that it finds me, binds me in, I want to go farther, I want to go deeper, find me when I swim deep in the ocean, killer whale, that's the clan where we come from, chiefs of the sea, they say, we walking on land today, I know I can fly. I don't want to be just a virtual reality one day. I want my descendants to be proud of the way they speak my name. So I make decisions every single day that aim that way. Arrows through eternity, an indigenous resistance. This fire burns in me for the truth to be set free and liberate my people surrounding me. So we sing, we sing songs from our ancestry, from the land, from the sea, from the winds, from the sunshine and the gray clouds, these places we've all been, the berry bushes, so sweet, we sing, we sing these things, we sing these songs that help us remember who to be, how to be human once again how to fight against them, how to unify our struggles and make it stronger within. We sing songs that tell us how to relate again, songs that tell us how to love and think again, songs that allow us to be more than we are right now, only messengers, only vessels like an empty eagle bone to share what we were meant to share through our ancestors' voices, through creators' voices, we speak. Gunashchish, thank you. When I look into the ocean 
Amazing. Thank you so much for being part of the fourth annual Ampersand Live Show. All of tonight would not be possible without our director and curator, Florangela Davila. Florangela, can you come out here, please?
I also want to give a huge, uh, what a moving and incredible show. Wasn't tonight amazing? Oh. I want to thank our contributors. Linda, Yehand, Tracy, Susan, Sophia, Akonamade. Everyone, come on out. Paul, Leanda, Keiko, William, Jade, our beautiful dancer, and the Westerlies that have been playing for you all night. Forterra made all of this possible. If you like tonight, you should support Forterra. Thank you to the Forterra staff, the Moore staff and crew. I'm Sarah Rudinoff. Good night. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This ampersand live event took place on October 26th at the Moore Theater, thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can find the full event on our website, KUOW.org. Tune in again soon. <laughs>